The views, comments, stories, and opinions shared within this podcast are our own or those of our guests and in no way represent the views of the companies, associations, or organizations that any of us may work for or represent. All stories, events, and tales shared within this episode may or may not have happened in the manner in which they were told. They may or may not have even happened at all. The details have been changed to protect the innocent and the guilty alike. This is Squawk Ident. You're listening to Squawk Ident, an aviation podcast that explores the many pathways to an aviation profession, the challenges that a professional aviator can expect in today's marketplace, and we share many stories along the way. I'm your host, Aviator Tony, a professional airline pilot currently flying for a U.S. legacy airline with close to 20 years on the flight line. Welcome aboard Flight 129 of the Squawk Ident podcast recorded on the 2nd of March, 2023. From the mobile Aviator Sound Studios high atop the fifth floor of the Hyatt Regency Hotel in Jacksonville, Florida. On today's flight, I have the honor in speaking with an aviator that we first had on our podcast on Flight 23, Apaches, C-12s, and Battalion Commander. He has since retired from the U.S. Army after 24 years of service. Today, he is a Boeing 737 First Officer at an airline we call Trans Global Airlines, an alias to his employer, a U.S. mainline carrier. Retired Colonel Terry S. joins me as we discuss his transition to the airlines, his flight training, and flying the line. We also share a few stories from the flight line that include diversions, severe weather, and 12-minute flights. So sit back, relax, and enjoy the rest of the podcast. Before we push off the gate, I would like to take this opportunity to thank Captain Julie Zabos for joining us on Flight 128, Peeling Away the Armor. We enjoyed finding out all about her journey in aviation and how she became a senior captain at Legacy Airlines. We wish you luck on the upcoming APA elections. Our guest today attended Widener University, where he earned his undergrad degree in business while in the ROTC program. After graduation, he became a commissioned officer in the United States Army, where he was selected to become an Apache helicopter pilot. Upon completion of his active duty period, he moved to Arizona, where he attended a fixed wing flight school at Phoenix Deer Valley Airport, formerly known as Pan Am Flight Academy. He flew as a ferry pilot, or an aircraft sales broker in the Valley. He then flight instructed for Tailwind Flight Center at Chandler Municipal Airport. He flew for Piedmont Regional Airlines, Express Jet, and he later joined a reserve unit where he flew C-12s and UC-35s. He became a Black Hawk Battalion Commander at Fort Knox, earned his second master's degree in strategic studies from the U.S. Air Force Air War College for strategic studies. And since, He has retired from the military as a military assistant for readiness at the Pentagon to the Secretary of the Army. We discuss his transition to a mainline carrier and much more. So please help me in welcoming to the show, retired Colonel Terry Schooler. Terry, how you doing? Doing all right, man. How are you? I'm doing great. You know, I'm so excited to have you on today. Um, Your journey in this fantastic aviation career we've been together since tailwind uh following each other along occasionally on these layovers uh whenever wherever you were in the world um whenever we could cross paths we would stop i know i've came to visit you a few times in in north carolina and um you know we've we've been connected 
together all via social media and texting and phone calls and emails and and it's been really cool to both have you as a friend to follow your journey and to have you join us on the show that you first started out on was it uh, flight 24 or 23 and then again later when you attended the rtag event in california uh you gave us a little heads up on that um you also joined us uh, uh a little bit before that too i think uh, on a show uh, where you were keeping us updated with your progress i was really really hoping that you would get picked up by a carrier then we would share in common which would be legacy airlines and you know trans global snagged you <laughs> how did that go how yeah. did that transition go for you where you know here you were you're getting ready to retire after all those years in the military and getting your full pension and just making such smart moves and then moving on going okay i'm getting ready to retire i want to still fly airplanes for a living when did you start that transition well um <clears throat> so the uh, last time I was on, uh, shortly, I guess it was shortly after the RTAG convention in 2021. Um, that was at the end of October. Um, and uh, I had gone there with the intent of uh, trying to obtain employment post-retirement, post-military. But uh, really, I was I was quite a ways out from retirement still. I mean, at that point, I was still over a year out from retirement. So really, I was just trying to gauge interest and, and see what my chances were going to be. But while there at the convention, I had the opportunity to meet with some recruiters and, and turn in my resume. And uh, about six weeks after that convention, I got an invite to take the assessment for uh, Transglobal. So uh, I took the assessment. Uh, was invited to interview in January of 22, and uh, about it was less than a week after my interview, I had a uh, uh, job offer. So um, they understood that my availability was uh, still a little ways out, and uh, that was okay. They uh, still uh, invited me to join them as a uh, as a member of the team. So. Uh, I finished out my military service. Uh, I started my terminal leave uh, from the military in October of 22 and uh, started with Transglobal uh, actually the same day that I started terminal leave. So um, they did not waste any time. No, no. And and I didn't want to waste any time either. You know, I wanted to to get in while the getting was good. You know, seniority is everything, right? Yeah, it sure is. Um, so it, it's amazing to me, you know, when we first met back in 2005, I thought how smart this guy is because you were, you were talking about how you were a helicopter pilot and you used your, was it the GI bill to get your fixed wing stuff? Is that what happened? No, I actually, uh, like, uh, like you took out a large flight. Oh, training you did? oh wow. So, so you, you, you had the foresight to go, you know what? I want to fly a fixed wing. And so you did that. And I thought, okay, he's going to flight instruct for a while. He's going to go down the path and he's going to apply at a regional airline and he'll do his time and he might move around a couple of times and he'll go down. And you said to me, no, I'm going to, 
no, was it not re-enlist, but, uh, um, I, I went back into the reserve, so I never actually left the military. So when I was at, uh, when I was going through training at Pan Am and, uh, teaching at Tailwind, I was still in the, uh, it's called the individual ready reserve. Hmm. Uh, so basically you're still in, but you're not in. It's kind of an odd way to describe it. You're inactive. Basically. Okay. So um, all that time I was inactive. And then after I, uh, after I went to Piedmont and then ExpressJet, actually, it was, it was while I was making the transition to ExpressJet, I was also um, looking at trying to get back into a, uh, a drilling reserve status. Uh, and, and that was, um, I, I'll be completely honest, that was to try to find a way to supplement my regional pilot income because you know what we were making back in those days. Yeah, nothing. It wasn't a whole lot. Yeah, so, I mean, it was just so smart of you. And I was so impressed by that. And you, you were able to get that fixed wing time, get back into the reserve unit, but this time as a fixed wing pilot. Is that a common thing in the military to do that? I, th- I thought that was kind of unique. Um, for the army, uh, there there isn't a lot of fixed wing. the The army is primarily a rotary wing service, so you know most of the aircraft in the army are helicopters. Um, however, there are fixed wing units both on active duty and in the reserve guard. Uh, the fixed wing units. Uh, in the reserve are more um, VIP and transport oriented, while the active duty units are uh, military intelligence. They have uh, sensors on those aircraft and they uh, collect intelligence uh, in support of military missions. So um, I was more on the VIP side, um, transport side, and uh, it's in the reserve. Uh, honestly, it's it's not many. It's uh, I think I think in the transport on the transport side of things, there's fewer than 200 aircraft, so it's it's not a lot. Now you mentioned earlier that you know you did your time, you've educated yourself, you took every opportunity that the, the U.S. Army gave you to get another degree, another certificate, another letter, another bar, um, and Again, another fantastic move to have those bullet points on your resume, on your career, on your journey. And then you attended RTAG. Now, for those listeners that might not understand what RTAG is, what can you say about it? What is RTAG? Um, RTAG started as a group group of Army helicopter pilots who were trying to figure out how to get to the airlines. Um, so it was originally named the Rotary to Airline Group, and uh, they've since just uh, changed the name. Now it's just it's just RTAG, and they're a, a 501c3 charity that uh, specializes in putting veterans into aviation-related careers, whether that's on the front side of the airplane, underneath the airplane, the back of the airplane, um, whatever it may be, uh, getting veterans into aviation-related careers. So. That is their their specialty. They offer scholarships. They have a convention once a year. Uh, this past year, it was in Fort Worth. Unfortunately, I wasn't able to, to get there because I was uh, actually in training at the time. Mm-hmm. Um, but uh, they 
they do everything that they can do to help veterans get into the aviation industry. It's, it's pretty awesome. Yeah. And we first, I think we, we talked a little bit about this uh, on the show that we had you on where you discussed being at the RTAG event. Um, you sent us in, I think it was an audio file and we aired it. And now RTAG, you can find them on rtag.org, rtag.org. It is a wonderful organization. Uh, Terry's pointing to his hat. He's got the RTAG gear on right now. It is his ball cap. Um, fantastic organization. Uh, they really do help rotor pilots transition to get jobs in a civilian sector, which is often a very difficult transition. You seem to have gone through it <laughs> exceptionally well. Um, what has that transition been like for you? Um, I, honestly, it, it's been it's been great. Um, you know, I, I did have the uh, the regional airline experience from you know fifteen sixteen years ago. Um, that uh, so I, I I had an idea of what to expect, but um, it, it wasn't a uh, it wasn't at a, a major legacy level carrier. So. Um, the, the transition has been awesome. Um, it's been nice to, uh, to get back into the civilian world and, uh, the company. And, and I know that, that all of the, uh, the legacy carriers are this way, but the company is, is nothing but awesome. They, uh, they do everything they can to, to make the transition as easy as possible. So it's been great. Good. You know, um, <laughs> you had that experience. You worked for multiple regionals before. You knew what to expect. What's the main difference that you saw between the regional training for a new hire versus a mainline carrier for a new hire? So um, at <laughs> Piedmont and at ExpressJet both, it was, um, I don't want to say it was the Hunger Games, but it was, you know, survival of the fittest, right? Yeah. They were uh, constantly throwing things at you uh it they it, it didn't feel like they cared whether you made it or not their goal was to uh execute the training and if you made it great if you didn't sorry about your luck <clears throat> yeah so whereas at uh transglobal i mean they want you to succeed they want you there they're happy you're there um and I've heard this from my friends at, at the other legacy carriers as well. They, they, you would not be there if they didn't want you there and they will do anything they can. They'll bend over backwards to help you succeed. So, uh, that is, that is, I, I don't even know how to describe it. It's, it's awesome. You know, I often, I heard, um, that when you're getting hired at a regional level, your previous experience generally is flight instructing or flying some charter operations or you know some maybe twin turbo time somewhere but for the most part nowadays we're looking at flight instructors flying cessnas and and pipers around for 1500 hours until they have enough time to get their atp and then they get hired and that's usually the bulk of the new hiring pool. So this could be their very first 121 operator at a regional. And there's thousands of pilots that are chomping at the bit to, to get that job. 
so like you said, you know, if you don't make it, oh, well, you know, I think things have changed a little bit now uh, because we're starting to see this global pilot shortage happening. So I think they're becoming a little bit more friendly in terms of their training um, cycles and their training philosophy. However, when you're at a mainline carrier, you have had the experience, um, whether that's military experience, flying heavies or your fighter jets around the country or the world, or you have previous regional airline experience, uh, and in some cases, previous mainline carrier and major airline carrier experiences with type ratings already. So the presumption is that you know what to expect, you know what to do. So it's more of a gentleman's or, or fair ladies, <laughs> to, be, to be fair and equal, um, experience. So they want you there, like you said. I mean, I had the same experience over at Legacy. They, the first thing they told us is, you know, calm down. Re- don't worry. We're not going to bust you and fire you in the, because you couldn't pass a sim. If you need more sim, we'll get you more simulator time. Uh, you know, you're not, there's not going to be this uh, testing every day. You're not going to have these 100 question, 50 question verbatim tests. Do you know your memory items? Verbatim? You know, do you know the, right. do you know the, uh, the FOM, the Flight Operations Manual? Verbatim? I mean, it's not like that. And it's more of that whole gentleman's uh, teaching or gentleman's school. And everything was so much more calm. And we had dinners. <laughs> like, right. yeah, here, have a steak dinner on us. Yeah, come on. You're, you're one of us. <laughs> yeah, they, they want you to succeed, you know. Um, they, uh, they're they happy you're there. Um, and I, I know at least at Transglobal, um, they're happy you're there because because uh, it indicates to them, and I was told this by several different uh, uh, pilots who are there, that uh, it indicates to them that they're growing, that uh, they're gaining seniority. You know, yeah. I, I, it's, it's crazy. The hiring environment right now is insane. I, I, I mentioned I started at Transglobal in October. I have a thousand people below me on the seniority list already. Oh, my God. In just four months. Yeah. In, in, <laughs> five. Yeah, yeah. Four or five months. Yeah. Thousand people. It's insanity right now. And how so many do they want to hire? You know, uh, how many do they want to hire this year? Do you know? Um, it's around 22 or 2,500 or something like that. That's a lot. Yeah. For one year? For one year. I mean, I, I hate to do math in public, but let's say they want to hire. 2,200 pilots, divide that by 12 months, that's 183 pilots a month. Let's just say there are 30 people in a class. That means they have to have... We're running, we're running classes every week of 50. 50? At least. Okay, so 50... In a class? How did... Okay, that'd be a lecture hall. Okay, so that means 3.6 classes a month of 50 people. And you can only get two people per sim? Yeah. So that's 25 sim sessions per person per, per sim session. Oh, geez. Like, how, what are they doing? Are they sending people around the world for simulator time? They, uh, do they own that many simulators? Actually, no. Um, the, the training center that Transglobal has is, is huge. Um, I'm sure not unlike what Legacy has, but uh, 
Yeah, there's the simulators are running pretty much 24-7. Um, I think, uh, so I was in training over Thanksgiving, and the simulators didn't run on Thanksgiving. I'm sure they didn't run on Christmas, but they run all around the clock uh, aside from that. So it's uh it's crazy they are they're running constantly um and and this is you know this is in addition to all of the pilots who are already on the line coming back for recurrent right uh coming back when they change equipment uh coming back for upgrade you know it's it's insane how how much training is going on right now yeah and it's just amazing it's it's staggering to i have to, i have to give some kind of note of respect to the training departments at, at all the legacy carriers because regardless of what you think about your training department the logistics to put on these numbers of new hires that we're all looking at hiring the growth the airplanes i mean i was in tucson just uh 3 days ago and there's still a bunch of airplanes all over the place parked in the desert. And it's not because the airlines can't just have the money to pull them out and get them flying again. It's because they just don't have the staffing. Otherwise, the schedule would grow right. because the airplanes would be there. So they have these airplanes that are parked, doing nothing. Millions of dollars sitting there in the desert, all wrapped up nice with a little bow on it. And we just don't have the pilots. And of course, the airlines aren't going to tell you that. Management's not going to tell you that because that then puts power into the hands for leverage and contracts. Now, Delta just announced yesterday that through a 78% of the pilots that voted said yes. So congratulations to, to Delta Airlines for passing their TA, a tentative Absolutely. agreement. Um, that is huge. That is changing the landscape of contract negotiations for all the pilots that are currently under Section 6. So it's it's an exciting time we do have leverage out there for those of us that are in the 121 world to think that oh well you know the economy is this and it, no there is a real pilot shortage with these airplanes are sitting there not making the company money just adding two aircraft to your fleet is huge and they want to get those airplanes out of the desert i'm sure because that's all money making opportunity but they just don't have the staffing. So, oh, absolutely. Yeah, I'd like to see uh, the exact language on the on the Delta TA. Congratulations to all those Delta pilots out there. Um, you know, this is a big step. Thank you for not settling for less. Uh, we will all benefit from this. When one carrier signs a contract that is the new standard, all the other carriers rise up to meet them contractually. Um, and we're not just talking about dollars an hour we're talking about quality of life improvements we're talking about contract improvements in terms of schedules in terms of uh, you know if your sequence falls apart <laughs> which we'll talk about um later in the show uh are you protected do you get premium pay if for doing flying that you weren't originally slotted to do all these little tiny caveats in the contract that you might not think are a big deal but once you're flying the line once you're out there and you realize how difficult this profession is schedule wise fatigue wise circadian rhythm wise then you realize man all those little quality of life things sure do add up and they are a big difference 
Oh, Delta. they absolutely add up. And, and, you know, Delta's new contract raises the bar for everybody. Um, they, they made quality of life improvements uh, that will hopefully help uh, the other carriers uh, make their own quality of life improvements uh, when they uh, get their contracts worked out. So, yeah, yeah. Congratulations to the Delta pilots, and uh, you know, I look forward to seeing what the rest of the industry does. Now, we're we're discussing what happens with these contracts that get agreed upon and signed off. Now, Delta has always been the standard. For a time, Southwest was the standard. Everyone wanted to go work for Southwest. Then JetBlue came on scene, and they were giving uh, profit sharing and stock options, and everybody wanted to go to JetBlue. But then it got to the point where you know those options were no longer available to you because that was only for the initial cadre of of uh, new hire pilots that came over. So then it, JetBlue wasn't the big deal anymore. Now people wanted to go. De- then Delta signed a good contract, and then now we've twelve airlines in the U.S., including cargo outfits, are all under these contract negotiations. And what's the big deal? Well, I think we've talked about it here on the show. By delaying the process, management, I think, was kind of strategically hoping that uh, an economic downturn would then give them leverage to give less, because it cuts into the bottom line at the end of the day. And since that really hasn't happened, I think that's now it's getting to the point where, well, if Delta signs a contract, that's going to be the new gold standard. And the Delta Union and the Delta Pilot Group did a fantastic job in in making sure that they got, what is it, 34% pay raises on top of quality of life issues? It was huge. Yeah, I think it's uh, what is it, thirty four percent over over the life of the contract? Yeah, next is, ten what, years, four years. Is it four years? I think it's four years. Yeah, yeah, and and I'm no expert. I haven't read contract or or anything about it. All I know is it passed, and and that's great. Now we're talking about hiring, right? That's what led all to this. Now over at there, there are plenty of airlines out there. There's a great website that if you are not familiar with it, I highly encourage you to go and take a look at it as a pilot or an aspiring pilot, just to get an idea. Now, when I got into this aviation gig, I, I knew I loved to do the flying. I, I it was a dream for me. It was a passion. And here I was flying Cessnas around, earning my private pilot certificate, thinking about going to a flight school and doing this as a career, changing careers, selling the house and the the picket fence and and just putting all my eggs in one basket. And I was often visiting a website called AirlinePilotCentral.com. AirlinePilotCentral.com is a really wonderful resource to find out a little bit more about the airline that you are researching. Say, I want to I go fly for United, for example. So you go on Airline Pilot Central and you pull up the, the quick take on United. And you can find out that they have no furloughs. Uh, first class deadheads over at United. So when you're deadheading on your schedule, you get a first class seat. Yes, sir. We'll never get that at Legacy. Never. Never. And the reason why is it used to be first class had seats available all the time. And so non-revs would always get a first class, but they stopped charging customers to upgrade. They allowed them to use their mileage points. So now first class usually is not only full, but has 20 to 30 people on the first class upgrade standby list every single flight. So a non-rev 
or a deadheader, either way, you're never going to see first class. And the funny thing is, <laughs> when I went for my interview all those years ago, 16 years, 17 years ago, to Sandpiper, uh, they sent me to go be interviewed in Dallas and they gave me a positive space ticket. I didn't have to buy an airplane ticket. And I can remember I got to sit in the first class of an MD-80. Now, it's not my first time being in first class before. I've been traveling since I was a little kid. And, you know, my parents were able to acquire some upgrades before in the past. And it was a really cool experience. Ashley was on a 747. Another story for another day. Um, but so we, we, I'm on the first class seat and the flight attendant says, oh, uh, what's going on? I see your, your positive space. Are you going for training? I'm like, well, I'm going for an interview for Sandpiper. And the, the flight attendant goes, oh. Well, enjoy your first class seat because you'll never see it again. <laughs> and I was like, wait, what? And it's true. It's like over at Legacy that the it's very rare that employees get a first class seat. But I digress. Um, they're anticipating 10,000 pilot hires in the next 10 years. Yes. 10,000 pilot hires in the next 10 years. And... If they're doing classes over there that are more than a thousand a year, then they're going to meet or exceed that expectation. Uh, new hire, new hire classes are in full effect. They're in full swing over at United. Uh, they currently own Aviate, which is their wholly owned aviation school. So if you're looking at a career in airline in the airline industry, you don't necessarily have to go and do it all on your own. You can apply to aviate that's unitedaviate.com for the website um you can start looking into that and they own a flight school in the phoenix metroplex so you can from day one ab initio program uh you you sign contract with them they help get you the funding they get you the flight training and then when you graduate and you build your time as an instructor for the school then when the opportunity comes in they'll get you a job at one of their partnered regional carriers and then once you have the minimum time as the a pilot hiring continues, you would have a streamline to the main line. Uh, so I think a lot of the, the future airlines are going to have to go through this program. I, I, I think you're right. I think they're going to have to just to, to continue uh, attracting people to this career because, you know, back when you and I started and, you know, we mentioned this, this huge flight training loans that we, we both took out. Um, it, it's, the, those loans are almost impossible to get nowadays. Um, you know, I, I know people who whose parents, you know, took out a second mortgage on the house just to be able to afford to put their child through flight training. Um, it's it's just so cost prohibitive. So I, I think the only way that the airlines are going to be able to continue to attract the talent that they want is by having these programs. Yeah. And it's, I think getting ahead of it is extremely positive for the airlines. Those that have started these, I know, um, is it Spirit has also uh, started a partnership with another flight school. Uh, so I will not be surprised to see that all mainline carriers in the U.S. in the next few years develop an Abinicio program. So there, there is increasingly good news about this career field, about how to get into it. It's not just for rich people. It's not just for uh, people with military experience. Anyone can become an airline pilot. And we're starting to see those numbers really 
grow. It's so positive. Um, just another quick, uh, quick take for the United flight, again, from AirlinePilotCentral.com. Uh, they currently have over 500 new narrow-body aircraft orders. They're to receive 40 in 2022, 138 in 2023, and 350 aircrafts in 2024. We're talking 50 XLR, Airbus 320 XLRs, 70 NEOs, 50 Boeing 737-8 MAXs, 33 737-9 MAXs, and 150 737-10 MAXs on order. And deliveries will start on those next year. They also have 15 boom aircraft orders plus another 35 options. Now, what does that mean? That means once they receive the 15, they already are in a slot or a reservation to receive an additional 35 to see how things go. Um, so they would already have priority for an additional 35. Those would start to take flight in the year 2029. So do the math. If you are a senior pilot at United in the year 2029, it's possible that you could get selected to fly a supersonic jet. That's pretty cool. So your transition seems like it has been very positive. You have had the advantage of having previous experience through 121 regional carrier we've discussed the differences between training well at least back then to what a regional carrier training was back then it was brutal you know um i was told i'll never forget it my first day of indoc i was told everyone look to your left look to your right one or both of those individuals or you might not be here at the end of this course so study that's <laughs> wrong that's wild you know and and, and, it, and it was in dallas texas and so, you know, the, the instructor had a little bit of a sudden twang. And I can remember, you know, we were going around the room talking to everybody to say, you had to stand up, give us your name, what you were flying before this. And I stood up and I said, hi, uh, yes, my name is uh, Anthony. And I, uh, I was a flight instructor, uh, flew these types of airplanes in uh, Arizona. And I'm from uh, California. I live in uh, Southern California. And he goes, California? I, I thought we stopped hiring people from California. Well, I guess you made it this far. I guess we'll keep you. <laughs> Everybody looked at me like, what the fuck? <laughs> <laughs> so, I mean, they were having a lot of fun with it, but it was tough. It was tough. Yeah. Um, and I saw grown men crying and thinking, oh, my career's over. I just busted a, my typewriter. Da, da, da. And it's like, no, it's not over. It's just, just a hurdle. It's something you'll talk about. What did you learn from this experience? Um, and especially now, now they do everything. They, uh, you know what? Uh, we're going to call this a, uh, a review training. Uh, you'll have to come back tomorrow for a check, right? Well, you're going to work on these, this, and this. Okay. Uh, right. A lot more friendly now. Now your yeah, training, definitely. I want to hear about your training. Uh, was it relatively simple? I mean, you've never flown a 737 before, right? No. And, uh, and the 737 uh, is a, uh, <clears throat> it's an interesting airplane. Um, I will say so. We started with uh, with our indoc, <clears throat> which is you know for those who don't know, basically it's an introduction to the company, the company's procedures, how the company does business, um, and then after that, uh, or actually it was uh, day one when everyone figures out what they're going to end up flying, uh, 
Um, I chose the 737 out of the uh, the DC area because that's where I live and makes uh, makes life a lot better when you live in your base, right? Um, so uh, after that, started fleet training, and uh, the 737. Like I said, it's a, it's an interesting aircraft. It's uh, it's old technology that's been upgraded. Um, so unlike the, uh, the fancy pants Airbus that you fly with all of your buttons and oh. automatic things that happen, I don't know about that. <laughs> anything that happens on the 737, you got to move a switch or push a button or something like that. So, um, <clears throat> it's, uh, I, I will, I will say that the training is not, um, it's not easy. Uh, it's, it's definitely work. Uh, it requires a lot of discipline and, and self-study. Um, and, uh, you know, I, I, I'll say that I had my share of, of difficulty with training. But, um, you know, you, you keep working hard. You push through it. You, uh, you ask for help when you need it. And they're more than happy to give it to you. And, uh, and you make it through. And, uh, you know, I didn't, I didn't bust any check rides. I didn't have any sim sessions where they're like, you suck. You need to repeat this. Um, but at the same time, it was, uh, it was difficult. Um, you, you definitely have to put the work in if you want to get through it. What was the biggest challenge coming from previous experience <coughs> with not just airline, like regional jet airlines? Um, you also had, you know, turboprop time. You also had like, basically the military equivalent of a citation jet time. You were an instructor in the army for that. So coming with that experience and your background, what was the biggest challenge to move on to another jet that just maybe a little bit bigger? Um, so, so for me personally, I think the biggest challenge was the fact that I had not flown in about three years. Oh um, yeah. Yeah. Yeah, I, I didn't have any recency, uh, so it was getting back into trying to stay ahead of the airplane. Um, that that took a minute to to come back. You know, like I, I knew what needed to happen. I just, uh, for me, I wasn't thinking far enough in front of the airplane. Yeah, um, I was more reactive instead of proactive, and, mm -hmm. and so I had to kind of get back into that uh, that proactive uh mode and by the end i was for the most part and uh um yeah it, it just being out of the cockpit for a while it it you know there's a lot to be said for recency yeah yeah and it you gotta you know dust the cobwebs off i feel the same way even you know being active on the line if i'm off for seven or eight days in a row or on my vacation for a week and then I come back to the line, even though I have thousands of hours of experience on that aircraft and you know, I have the recency, even then, even those minute little breaks, you come back and you're like, okay, I, I got to get my head in the game. And you sit there, you know, during your pre-flight in the cockpit and you're sitting there, you're setting up your nest, uh, you know, getting everything where you want it and, you know, writing right. down all the, all your notes for the, the departure information uh, the things that are relevant to that flight and you're sitting there and you're going okay do i remember how to do this okay and did i do everything that i did needed I, to do yeah what did i miss am i missing something <laughs> you know and we have these little these little sound bites these little you know uh rhythmic 
sayings. Like I know for me, you know, when we're when we're about five minutes prior to departure, that's when everything sh- we should be ready to go. And I always say two spinning, one FD2, pink over blue, which means two engines are both running. Uh, you know, we have the, the pink over blue uh, indications on the PFD, meaning the flight management computer is set and the speeds are correct. And we did everything. We didn't forget to put information in the FMS. And, uh, and both flight directors, you know, one FD2, both flight directors are on. And so we're not going to, we're going to have guidance when we take off. Um, These little things, you know, um, I know they train us on the Airbus. They tell us uh, Florida highway patrols eat uh, donuts. And what that means is, I'm in Florida. What the coincidence (laughs) is that? Uh, What that means, you're checking all your pages, right? On your, on your, uh, make sure that you have, you know, oil temperature, oil pressure. um, You have hydraulic levels are good and it's all pre-departure stuff and then in route you're checking that like once an hour um right you know and we have all these things you know back in ga we had them too right tomato with flames is a yep. prime example you know mandatory equipment for for vfr uh, airplanes um so then we, we kind of learn these things and once you have the repetition down you've done it a thousand times ten thousand times then it's like you're not even thinking about it you just up. you do it forget these little sayings i know that drives the checker man crazy they're like well who taught you that why are you do why? just just do it don't right. <laughs> don't tell yourself a little you know such so some checker men have a problem with you going oh that's tomato flames or whatever um <laughs> they, they want you to it, understand it <laughs> yeah and at the end of the day it's it's however you need to remember it in order to be able to make sure that it happens um, that, that you're doing everything that you're supposed to do. So uh, whatever memory aid you need, right? Yeah. Yeah. Use them. Use them. I mean, even if you don't voice them out loud, use them uh, because they could save your bacon. <laughs> Absolutely. Sure. So now you've, you, you had your, your difficulties and it's understandable. You know, you're going into a, a, a Boeing product. I'm just saying, um, but you're going into a 737, you know, you've never <laughs> flown them before uh, and you're getting your type rating. It's exciting. You're there. And how many sim sessions did you end up receiving prior to your type rating check ride um god i don't remember the exact number because so we started in uh we started in cockpit procedural trainers Mm -hmm. that are full up mock-ups of the cockpit um some of these trainers even had the uh the a cars working uh, which is kind of cool but some of them didn't um some had visuals, some didn't. Um, but basically, it's it's just to to get you used to the symbology, the switchology, where everything is, and you know you, you get into those trainers and you do your flows, you practice your flows, you practice uh, the procedure from from walking in the airplane uh, at the beginning of a flight to to walking away from it after you uh, complete a flight and everything in between. Um, so we had a bunch of sessions. I'm, I'm trying to remember how many, and I honestly don't. Um, usually then, about a week worth, like so, seven, seven or eight uh, sessions. Usually, I'm sorry. That sound about right. About seven or eight sessions of a cockpit uh, procedures, and to get all the flows and callouts down before <clears> you get into the simulator. I, I think so. It, it sounds right. So, so uh, Transglobal um, does uh, AQP. So we go through the. Uh, 
systems validation, that's first. Then from there into maneuvers validation. Uh, so systems validation uh, is, uh, I believe that was done all in the, uh, in the procedural trainers. Mm-hmm. And then you go into maneuvers validation, which is done in the sim, uh, which is, uh, they may or may not put the simulator on motion, um, but you, know, you fly the flight uh, to execute the maneuvers that you have to do, your, your steep turns and uh, your, what is it, approaches to stall and, and all of that, that stuff. And then once you get through, through the maneuver validation phase, we went into the full flight sims, uh, which I want to say, I want to say there were five or six. No, there were more than that. I honestly don't remember. It's it's a blur. I was just trying to keep my head above water. <laughs> you ram dumped that information as soon as you got out of the sim, I'm sure. <laughs> as yeah, we all do, yeah. exhausted, <laughs> mentally exhausted coming out of there. Yeah. Yeah. So, you know, uh, the the simulator training was something that I knew nothing about when I got into this. I mean, I was on a Frasca. I used to teach on a Frasca um, Microsoft Flight Simulator we used as a tool for a lot of our students getting IFR uh, studying and transition going. Um, and my first experience in a real-life simulator was my interview for Sandpiper. They put me in a, a Fulker uh, simulator because nobody was using it. They, they had not been flying that airplane. And that they just wanted to make sure that I could fly the flight director bars. They you know make sure that I'm doing everything um, that I had a good scan. That was the big thing. Cause when you're coming from, uh, and I don't think this is such a big deal now because of the modern, uh, glass cockpits in GA that are prevalent, especially at flight schools, because they know the transition is easier for their students to get onto an airline. But, um, when you're coming from a six pack scan, and then now you're all of a sudden flying a glass cockpit in a simulator on an airplane that is, you know, doing 250 knots, you know, easily <laughs> below 10,000. Um, and now you're trying to shoot an approach and you have to slow accordingly on an airplane that doesn't like to slow. Um, so you have to plan, you have to do everything three miles, five miles ahead of when you want it to, <laughs> like you want to be on speed so you can get the flaps out and the gear out and all that stuff. And so they wanted to make sure that you could do that in the interview. Or at least you had a, a knowledge enough that you weren't going to completely just get off the rails and, and come outside of the, the, the basically this, the test standard or their standard of, you know, can I keep this airplane upright? Can I follow instrument procedures and direction? Um, right. And it was very impressive. I mean, you're sitting in a box that's like 30 feet by 30 feet by, by 30 feet, and you're up on hydraulics 30 feet in the air. And this thing is millions of dollars. And when you sit inside, you know, you know all you hear is the computer fans humming and you see the touch screen that the instructor uh, has behind with a little desk in the coffee holder, <laughs> even though you're not supposed to have any kind of liquid in ever. In, not even no liquids, no liquids, no liquids, no food, no nothing. Um, so, so you're sitting there. I mean, some of these simulators are so advanced that they can push a button and they have that theater fog or theater smoke that comes out and you go, oh, smoke in a cockpit, smoke in a cockpit. And then you have to like put on your mask on and go through those procedures. And they don't really do that much anymore because a lot of carriers say we're not paying for that <laughs> theater smoke anymore. Right. we could just simulate it um but you're in there and it, it really messes with you because you're looking at these high resolution screens 
and the whole, your whole body is being moved around. It's like you're being in a roller coaster. If you're not a roller coaster kind of person, you might have some simulator sickness. <laughs> and you come yeah. out of there, especially out of maneuvers and turbulence. And yeah, it, it messes with your equilibrium. Um, and on top of that, you're trying to go through the minutia of emergency procedures, flows that you're learning maybe for the first time. You're trying to recall, remember what I'm supposed to say next. What's my trigger to say this? And what's my flow to, after this trigger? And it's mentally exhausting. And it's not like we're going to, okay, we're going to do one. All right, uh, let's talk about that. No, you don't have time. That simulator, there's like, 10 other crews waiting to give, use that simulator when you're done. So you have, say, a two-hour session or a four-hour session, and, you know, there's people sitting there on the little connector waiting for you to, okay, take the sim off motion. It's our turn now. Um, so there's no time for that. That's why you have the pre-flight briefing or the pre-sim briefing and the post-sim briefing. But when you're in there, man, it is exhausting. It is one thing after another. Okay, good. Next. Okay, good. Next. And especially if you have an instructor who maybe doesn't have the patience and they're just like going through the motions. You're not really, you're doing this stuff. They're evaluating you, but you're really not getting much out of it other than going through the motions. It can be difficult. Oh yeah. And, and you know, the, the other, uh, something else to, to think about is the, the schedule itself. You know, you don't, there's not a lot of time in the day uh, for you to spend studying uh, at least for for me you know the the schedule was was very compressed i would be in a simulator um for four hours you know you've got a two-hour pre-brief a 30-minute debrief afterwards um and then you know there's there's the rest of your life that that you've got to live you know there's you have to sleep you have to study um some of us are inclined to uh, go work out, you know, and try to try to keep up a healthy, healthy lifestyle. Um, and uh, and so, you know, for me going through training, at least um, I had about two hours a day to study. And that is uh, all the time I could really spare um, and still get six or seven hours of sleep. Um, it, it was just it was a very compressed schedule. Um, and. You know, that's that's at any airline. I mean, you're going to have a, a fairly compressed schedules. So yeah. now uh, Trans Global did allow me to go home on my days off. So, um, you know, that was I guess I guess you could say part of that was self-inflicted because um, I tried to to get home every weekend. I've got small kids, so you know, I wanted to be home. Um, but, you know, on the flights back and forth, um, I was studying. You know, uh, yeah. just trying to stay up with everything, stay on top of it and be prepared for the next session. Yeah, I think it's gotten worse over the years because I can remember when they handed you your manuals and you're like, OK, here's your, your aircraft operating manual. Uh, you'll be expected to know these uh, memorize the limitations section. You can go through the system section. And then uh, here is the the other manual, the uh, what we call the FM or FOM, the flight operations manual, or basically all the rules of the company, you know, what we do, what we don't do, what are uh, not aircraft specific, you know, so schedules, uniform, all the code of conduct, all that stuff. So you're expected to kind of read through and know that. And so you have these two manuals that are your main reference. And, you know, thousand pages each 
you're going through, you're reading a section every week, you read a section, you know, you're getting ready. Now with the electronic flight manuals or the, uh, the EFBs, right? Exactly. So you have these electronically on an iPad and they don't just give you the two manuals. They give you everything, everything. everything. So, and now these manuals that used to be 800, 900,000 pages, these manuals now are incorporated with other manuals like performance manuals and, you know, special operations manual and weather manuals. And, and, and so you have all this stuff and in there, you don't just have the two or three manuals on top of your, your Jeppesen or your flight charts for your, for your instrument charts. You have 20 manuals and some manuals you'll might never get into but you have access to them like the hazmat manual. I mean, really, are you ever going to, have you ever even looked at your hazmat manual, but you have to have it It's part of your, you know, it's got to be available to you in case you have hazmat of some kind that is allowed to be on a 121 carrier with passengers. um, And you're transporting dry ice, nine out of 10 dry ice. If you don't know what dry ice is, look up dry ice because as an airline pilot, you will need to know what dry ice is, what the limitations are, how much you can carry. So let's just say you have an emergency and you land the airplane and a wheel catches fire and now you're egressing out on a ramp area somewhere and you have uh, airport rescue and firefighting or ARF around your airplane, spraying your airplane down with foam. And the first thing they're going to ask you is souls on board, how much fuel you have in time remaining or how many gallons you have left. Uh, and they're going to ask you, do you have any hazmat? And if the answer is yes, you better know exactly what you have, where you have it, how much you have of it. That's why they give you a notice to uh, the captain or no talk for, for our company. They probably call it something else at different carriers. So that's, is that when you're going to open up the manual for the first time and tell them what type of hazmat you have? Probably not. So you're going to have to want to look through that. So now that all of that all this information, all this technology that we have at our fingertips, there's no way you can read through a manual and go, oh yeah, I remember that's in section seven of this book here. And I put a post-it note and it's, it's highlighted. No, there's none of that anymore. So it's almost like it's information overload. We're changing the dynamic of our knowledge as airline, professional airline pilots. And it's become more and more difficult to study. It's become more and more difficult to keep your concentration because you're bombarded with all this information. But that's what AQP is, right? AQP is Advanced Qualified Program. Is that, am I getting the phraseology right? Advanced Qualification Program, right? Qualification Program. uh, So instead of training you the book, how to build the airplane, they're training you on the specific procedures that we use, the profiles that we use. They're not teaching you how to build the airplane and how it works. They don't care that you know that there's an air cool, fuel cool, whatever, this, and this is how many degrees it comes out. They don't care anymore. That's how you and I had to learn when we were learning a regional, right? Uh, what's right. the temperature of the uh, pre-cooler uh, exhaust limit? You know, like, wh- what? <laughs> uh, now Why they don't care. matter? <laughs> they don't care. Uh, you're going to actually need to know that at any point in your flying career for any reason? No. So they're not teaching that. And with that comes a bombardment of profiles and procedures that you learn and you may not realize why you're learning it but you got to learn it right and apply it and under the pressure of a simulator and every time that instructor behind you gives you an atc instruction it's because you're supposed to be doing something he's trying to distract you every single time (laughs) 
how many distractions yeah. did you get caught in in the sim <clears throat> oh geez all the time every day all the time and, <laughs> and in fact on my check ride i got i got snagged in a distraction yeah <laughs> and uh thankfully we uh we recognized it in time and and didn't bust but we were we were pretty close because it was a distraction thrown at us for that reason yep and and when you read if you're one of these uh young aviators or aspiring aviators that likes to read ntsb reports or maybe you're taking a class on aircraft accident investigation um every single one it usually starts when it's a pilot error situation with a distraction you were doing something non-flight uh, related during sterile point in the flight nine out of ten that's why we have a sterile cockpit rule no that does not mean both pilots have been neutered no it means sterile cockpit means we don't talk about anything other than what is directly in related to that portion of the flight below ten thousand feet and at the last thousand feet of any altitude that you're leveling off at why because you don't want to introduce distractors and distractors you know yeah. so yeah distractors in the simulator look for them <laughs> yeah absolutely yeah you were talking about the uh the information overload i just pulled out my uh my efb um transglobals 737 flight manual three thousand pages oh my my lord <laughs> 3,000 pages. The flight operations manual's 1,200. Um, but the flight manual for the aircraft is 3,000 pages. Yeah. Yeah. And remember the days so, where you would pull a manual out of your 50-pound kit bag and you had those red oh yeah. uh, sticky tabs that you can go, okay, uh, I know I'm going to get this every year in the simulator, so it's red sticky tab to highlight it, and here's the procedure, and here's the profile. Now you can't do that. Because yeah. even if you electronically only, bookmark not something, you not do that. You can you can bookmark. You know you can leave a bookmark, and then they update the publication, and your bookmark goes away. Right, and for us, they're like updating it like every week, and so I have stuff. Because right. what happens when you highlight text, in, in at least for our EFB, when you highlight text, it highlights it, and you're like, great. Now when I'm, I know exactly where to look if I ever have this, you know, in a dark cockpit, you know, in a simulator, whatever. Um, and then they update it. And if you don't go into there, the text that you highlighted is now different text <laughs> or not text at all. <laughs> and you're like, wait a minute, why is this highlighted? <laughs> it's not, it's a picture. <laughs> so, yeah. So th these are all the things you can look forward to in a career in aviation. Yeah. <laughs> well, the Boeing 737 is a narrow body aircraft that was produced by Boeing at its Raytheon factory in Washington. It was uh, developed to supplement the Boeing 727 on short and thin routes. The twin jet retains the 707 fuselage with six abreast seating with two underwing turbofans. Envisioned in the year 1964, the initial 737-100 made its flight on April of 1967. It entered service in February of 1968 with its launch customer, Lufthansa. The legend 737-200 entered service in 1968 and evolved through four generations, offering several variants from 85 to 215 passenger configurations. The Guppy. 
It later went on to have different variants from Pratt & Whitley JT8D low bypass engines, offered seating for a variety of passengers from 85 to 130. In 1980, it, it was launched and introduced in 1984, the 737 Classic 300, 400, 500 variants, and were upgraded with CFM 56.3 turbofrans. Uh, also introduced in 1997 was the 737 Next Gen, or the NG. This was the 600, 700, 800, and 900 variants of the 737. Those had CFM 56.7s for engines, and the larger wing and upgraded glass cockpit also was introduced there. The latest generation is the 737 Max. This is the 737 789 and 10 Max. Those were improved by introducing the CFM Leap 1B high bypass turbofan, and it accommodates anywhere from 138 to 204 people. It entered into service in the year 2017. The same airplane from 1964 in all of its variants are still being produced today. Now, this is a topic of much debate over the 737. There are critics in the industry and plenty of articles out there for you to read that say that Boeing made a mistake. They should have stopped producing the 737. They should have introduced a new model instead of expanding, stretching out, making longer the same airplane. So you could be flying so many variants in the same company, all with one type certificate. So it's it's kind of a pretty hot topic discussion in the industry. Should the 737 continue to be made? Well, as of right now, they are. They're back into production. The 737 Max has been they corrected all the issues that they had with the with their system that nosedived a few of the airplanes at carriers overseas. Um, the training has been revised. Now every pilot flying a 737 Max has been trained in accordance with the safety procedures that have developed from that incident. There's a fantastic documentary about Boeing, about the 737 MAX. It's on Netflix. Um, and it'll piss you off. And it, it all leads to corporate greed and, and bad McDonnell Douglas. Bad. <laughs> so, <laughs> um, but yeah, the 737 was designed to compete with the A320neo same engines the the neo i believe has one a's and the 737 max has one b's what's the difference Vedic. that's it so um you're flying all of them right because you all have now all the all that trans global has right so uh trans global has the 700 800 900 and 900 er as well as the Max 8 and the Max 9. Wow. Yeah. So and you have orders, for, well, many orders, orders for more. Orders for the Max 10, I believe, once that's certified. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Now, what was the, was there any kind of specific training that you had to go through in relation to the, uh, the new Max system? Uh, so, honestly, um, because I started training after the whole uh for lack of a better word debacle mm -hmm. um the all of the max stuff 
was incorporated into the training. So, you know, it, we would have sim sessions one day where we were in a, an NG and the next day we'd be in a max. Oh, okay. um, they made sure that we went back and forth. And so, you know, now it's, I, I'm, I've been on a trip where <clears throat> I've been in a 700, I've been in a 900 ER, I've been in a max eight all on the same trip. Um, so it, it's, it's pretty seamless. Uh, there's, you know, some, some slightly different uh, procedural items between the maxes and the NGs, uh -huh. but uh, for the most part, there, there's really, it, it's seamless. So you're, you were trained immediately into the new procedures for the MCAS system, which from my recollection, yes. the pilots, even here in the U.S., none of them got specific or specialized training when that airplane came out on the line. It wasn't until after the accidents that created the grounding of all 737 MAXs um, that this training was developed and then implemented and required by the FAA. Yeah, I, I think, honestly, I, I, I don't know. I think um, Rob probably has a much better idea as far as, you know, what, what the uh, differences in training were, at least uh, for, for legacy. But, um, I, I mean, like I said, for us, everything was incorporated uh, into initial training. So going back and forth, so it really wasn't a big difference for us. You know, we got we got some of the differences training, or we got the differences training on the Max uh, and the MCAS, and and why it why it came to be. Um, you know, the engines the engines are bigger, so they're mounted further forward and higher. Um, they they in order to retain that same level of ground clearance. I think it's eighteen inches of ground clearance, which is uh, not a lot. Of the engine to sell to uh, the ground. Yeah, yeah. So. Uh, in order to retain that same ground clearance, they had to move the engines forward and up. Ah. Uh, and because of that and the associated change in, uh, in CG and, and maneuvering characteristics, uh -huh. they developed the maneuvering characteristics augmentation system. Um, but, you know, if, if you were to have a, uh, an AOA vein failure in an NG... I mean, the procedure is almost exactly the same. There's just, there's one extra switch in the max that you're going to flip down. Oh, so okay. it's just to, to cut out the, uh, the trim. So that's, that's in a nutshell, that's not the exact procedure. So don't quote me on that, but, uh, it's, uh, you know, generally speaking, you're going to, you're going to move one extra switch. Yeah. Um, not a big deal. It, if you're, if you're a pilot, be a pilot, you know, fly yeah. the airplane. Um, if you know and we learned this from day one if if you're getting overloaded with the automation the automation is doing things that you don't understand or don't necessarily want the airplane to do then turn the automation off lowest know, level downgrade. of automation yeah exactly downgrade that level of automation to the point where you can do make the airplane do what you want it to do and uh it 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 seems like, you know, reading through uh, those accident reports from overseas, um, they, they didn't do that. So not, you know, not casting any, any ill on the, the deceased, but, you know, you're a pilot, be a pilot. 
Well, that's what we were talking about earlier. I mean, we were alluding to the fact that there was a time when you had to build the airplane. You had the manuals, you would bookmark and highlight. And every time you did a change, you were given a stack of papers that you had to physically stick into the book in the appropriate section and pull out the old section, put in the new section, read the change bar. And you had to really have a thorough, thorough understanding of the system. It was a requirement. And now with the advent of the AQP system, the technology, the EFB, these 3,000 page manuals, there's, it's an impossibility to do that anymore. I mean, we get revisions, we click a button and it goes, your manuals have been updated. What changed? Well, you're supposed to, you know, any, any checker is going to say, well, technically, uh, upon every completion of an update, you are supposed to read the highlights page that, you know, precludes the manual and you're supposed to read the page I'm like who does that who nobody does that because everyone just right. pushes a button and goes okay i'm legal for my trip i updated my manuals let's go what's the change i don't know don't care let's go that is the reality and the faa as the governing body of safety and regulations and in, in the aviation uh realm of the industry doesn't care they don't care. They're not putting time and effort into it. Now, I've always been an advocate for, hey, every time you do a revision, you should get something like uh, uh, something that you have to physically go through. Even, I don't care if it's a PowerPoint presentation, but something with the changes. All right, here's what changed. Here's what changed. Here's what changed. Okay, got it. Good. Click this button. You've read it. You understand it. You're okay, fine. And then boom, now the company goes, okay, not only are your manuals updated, but you've reviewed the changes. And you've clicked confirm, and now you're responsible for that. I, I have no problem with that, because that helps me as a pilot understand what the changes were. Now, a lot of the time, the changes were verbiage, titles, chapter headings, stupid stuff that it's like, couldn't you just wait and do this one big change later? Because that stuff is really minutiae that doesn't affect the flying. But then right. they do these changes, and I know Legacy Airlines, and I know some other carriers out there have done it too, where they have these major monumental changes to verbiage, to flows, to checklist, and then the, all they do is, no training whatsoever, all they do is a PowerPoint two-page presentation and go, here are the changes, here's the ver verbiage you're going to use now, all new different triggers and flows, uh, good luck. So th I, there's an opposite. I can't imagine that. <laughs> there's an opposite <laughs> argument to it too. And I'm still, I mean, here we are months later, and I'm still... You know, every once in a while, I catch myself saying the old way, <laughs> you know, right. and uh, just wait. Privacy, till we, right? Yeah, privacy. And so just wait till we do a go around because even the go around flow is different. I mean, it's, it's not going to cause anybody to be unsafe if you do it the old way. But, you know, there's going to be that momentary distraction at a critical phase of flight when you're maybe 10 feet off the ground executing a go around because you some knucklehead took off without clearance. It just happened. Um, Boston. <laughs> so, you know, mm. so you, you, you don't want to struggle with finding the words and finding the procedure in the back of your mind. You'll feel like a new hire again. <laughs> You're like, right. what, what am I supposed to say? Is it what? No, there's no time for that. You need to be three steps ahead of the airplane. If you're not, you're already behind. So yeah, I got a problem with the training, <laughs> both by not having us review updates and by giving us updates in a PowerPoint presentation with no additional training. Both can be disastrous. Um, so, and we'll be right back right after this break. Kick 
soapbox. I'm done. <laughs> <laughs> now you're on the line. Congratulations. You're on reserve. And, you know, we were talking back and forth uh, all week about how, yeah, I'm not doing anything. Uh, I can be on show. Let's do this. <laughs> I got excited. Yeah. I'm like, this is awesome. It's great. I've always wanted you to have you on the show more often. You know, of course, you're going to put your friends uh, front and center, you know, show off your friends when, whenever you can. Um, sure. Because I, I am very, so, so much very proud of you uh, for all that you've accomplished. You've always impressed me. Um, and I've always tried to like, damn, damn, Terry. Uh, he did what? <laughs> what a good, it's always a good move, you know, on this, uh, this chess board of uh, an aviation journey. And now we're, we're going to have you on the show more often. At least that's the goal. Um, because you haven't been flying much. What's it been like? Yeah. So um, I finished training uh, in early December and then uh, started OE after that. Um, so did, uh, two trips for OE and, uh, and then I had a couple of trips over Christmas. I'd actually bid for a line in December and because of the training footprint taking up most of the month, uh, the way that our PBS system works, they were able to award me, uh, a line quote unquote for, uh, the remainder of December. So I had a couple trips over Christmas, oh, okay. uh, one that led I got home Christmas Eve and then uh, I left Christmas Day. Uh, and then I didn't fly for almost a month. Oh, wow. Um, just because uh, of the time of year and the number of reserves that we have in my base here, um, I, I just, uh, there, there was nothing available. So I sat for a while. Um, I tried picking up trips, but there's nothing in open time because, like I said, there's, uh, a lot of reserves here in this base and so open time was was disappearing basically as soon as it hit the block it was gone um so uh i i actually had to request trips for consolidation mm. so consolidation is within uh the first 120 days of the uh the, the check ride uh you have to fly at least 100 hours and uh, so, I, I mean, I had plenty of time remaining, but I felt like I was uh, losing proficiency very fast, and I was. Um, so I requested some consolidation trips, uh, got over my 100 hours, and then sat again for about three weeks between trips. Um, and I just finished a trip yesterday. Uh, that was my, my first trip since consolidating. And, uh, yeah, it's just, it's been slow and it's just a, a, a matter of the, uh, the time of year and, uh, and where the flying is, um, every, every, everybody I talk to, every captain I've flown with is like, just, just wait, you know, spring break starts, um, you're gonna, you're gonna get really busy. Uh, so, you know, for now I'm on reserve. I've got a, uh, I'm on reserve for March again. And, uh, the way that uh, they're hiring folks and assigning them in, into bases, I don't know when I'll be off reserve. It might be before the summer. It might be after the summer. Um, but, uh, you know, as long as I start flying more, I think I'll be a little bit happier. But, yeah, I've got, yeah. I got a lot of time available right now. Yeah. yeah. Good for us, right? Good for us. And I'm sure yeah, you're excited absolutely. to get back on the line. Uh, flying always trumps everything else except for family. And so, uh, you know, I. I 
feel very positive about your future experiences um, with Transglobal. You're, you're hit the nail on the head. You're, it starts out slow. It's normal. It's this time of year. But as soon as you get more and more people under you, you're going to have the opportunity to fly to the point where you're going to be like, oh, I need, I need a week off. And you've yeah. picked the perfect time to, to actually be on reserve and not get called because the weather has been kind of crappy. Rob, right at the beginning of it, when we started recording, Rob sent me a text message. He was not able to make it today, and neither were the other members of the Squawk Ident crew. Um, they're all flying the line out there. Uh, but man, Rob sent me a picture of the aircraft in Tucson, Arizona with a bunch of snow and ice accumulation on top of the wings. That's wild. That's, that's crazy to, to think about snow and ice in Tucson. Do they even have de-icing equipment? <laughs> yeah, I, yeah I, I would honestly be surprised if they did. I don't think they do. I, I guess they'd have to wait for the temperature to go up and the sun to come up to melt it all off the top of the wing and get a tactile check before they can take off. But um, uh, just crazy. Crazy. Yeah. You know? Yeah, um, the, weather, the weather has been something else. And, and thankfully, I've been able to... I mean, I, I haven't been flying much, so I've stayed out of most of it. Yeah. But, uh, you know, I've, I've gone through... Gone through Denver a few times, had to de-ice uh, Chicago. Um, well, we, we uh, so I was in Medford, Oregon on my last overnight. Yeah, you got stuck uh, there, right? Yeah, we had to de-ice coming out of there. Just, I mean, it was frost on the wings. So just a you know quick shot of type one. But um, I, I did get stuck in the hotel. It was a long overnight. So I got stuck in the hotel because it snowed like eight inches overnight. It was crazy. <laughs> Yeah, I was telling you, go rent a snow machine, man. <laughs> go do something. Um, yeah. So, but I'm I'm so happy for you, and I'm so proud of you. Uh, so, good job, man. Congratulations. Thanks, man. I appreciate that. It's uh, it's it's good to have finally arrived. You know. <laughs> yeah. No. Well, you you've been here the whole time. You're just waiting to to shine, and here you are. Here's your opportunity. Um, and I'm happy for your family too, because I know this is a big deal, and you know, dad's. Dad gets to be home a lot more now, right? So, you know, enjoy it while you can. Yeah, home a lot. I don't know. I don't know. Home a lot more, I guess so. I guess if we're talking about years past. Yeah. I mean, you're home when you're home, you're home. Yeah, yeah, definitely. You know, instead of when you're home, you're home, but you're kind of thinking about work and there are phone calls that are coming in and emails and you're, you don't have to worry about that anymore. (laughs) I, I will tell you that is the single best thing about the airline career is when you walk away from the job, you don't have to think about the job. Um, you know, I, on rare occasion, you know, there's, 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 you're bidding your schedule and, and things like that. But I mean, for, for the most part, there, there's no thinking about the job when you're not on the job. It's great. Uh, before we talk about the, the multiple diversions that I had last week. Uh, I, I wanted to have you talk about your experience for the first time you shot one of the country's most exciting approaches to an airport. And ask any airline pilot out there, talk to me about the River Visual 1-9 into DCA. And such a, such a cool approach. Yeah, and you had the opportunity, and I can't believe after all these years, you had never flown it before, and you had the opportunity to fly it yourself for the first time on the 737 for Transglobal. Walk us through that experience. 
so so in in truth in lending i have been in the right seat before uh on this approach but uh when i was at express jet but at express jet um the captain had to fly the approach they oh. wouldn't let the first officers fly this approach at least you know back in 2007 so um yeah so they uh they vectored us all over creation i got the uh screen share up here of our, our approach path it, they were vectoring us around for spacing mm-hmm. but uh we uh we got to uh pick up the river and uh and fly it down and you just the weather was beautiful yesterday so we just had this absolutely tremendous view of the entire area so you pick up the river you you see the bridges you're flying down the river you're pointed at right at the end before you make the turn on the final to land runway one nine, um, you are uh, pointed basically directly at the Washington Monument with the Capitol behind it, right over the mall. It's just, it's so cool. Um, and I actually got to be the one driving it yesterday. So, um, you know, talk about distractions under 10,000 feet. <laughs> yeah. That was a that was a distraction, but it was a it was a cool distraction and, and uh, a necessary one uh, as we were coming into land on uh, runway one nine. So just an awesome approach. Yeah, and for those that may have never seen this, you can actually pull this up. Um, there is a uh, another great website, uh, especially if you're a you know GA pilot building your time. Maybe you're doing some instrument instruction. Look up AirNav. AirNav, A-I-R-N-A-V. AirNav, it's a great website. Uh, they're the NOS charts or the government charts. They're not the Jeppesen charts. But for free, you can download PDFs of you know some airports. You can use it in your flight simulator to study and trying to shoot these approaches. The River Visual Runway 19, it's uh, chart 19-2 on the Jeppesen uh, chart, um, chart library for DCA. Uh, Washington, this the Ronald Reagan Washington National Airport. Don't call it Ronald Reagan Airport. The controllers won't like you, and that's a whole other story. Um, but you look at this, and it's all completely visual. And there is no missed approach procedure. So if you're going to do a missed pr- approach, your tower instructions straight out. Um, there is uh, the MSA in the area is 2,600 feet. That's because of buildings and monuments and whatnot. There is a r- prohibited areas that line the eastern bank of the potomac so you literally are to follow the river and all of its curves and they have suggested altitudes so many dmes out uh, and they have a lot of visual reference points like the key bridge the george mason memorial bridge the georgetown reservoir so you you should study a little bit before you go in there for the first time and kind of get an idea basically you're following the river all the way down to touchdown. And if you touch the prohibited area, you will at minimum get a phone call. So you have to consider things like wind drift and you know where, what direction is the wind coming from? How is the airplane going to react? Now, when should I be configured? What speed should I be flying this at? And honestly, you should be completely configured before you start this approach. <laughs> because if you're not, you're going to be behind the eight ball and you're going to be high. Um, and all these things come into play. This is a very complicated visual approach procedure with a lot of restrictions. And you're turning final at what, 200, and 200 feet? 
250 feet. I think you're turning from. Yeah, the, something uh, like that. Uh, I don't know. I wasn't, I wasn't looking. I was looking outside. <laughs> yeah. And you're looking, you're right over the park and you're like, there's people down there. Yep. There are people down there. And a lot of people go watch airplanes come in all day long at the park, right on final for runway one nine. Um, yeah, I think it's a uh, gravelly point is what it's called. That's where everybody goes to watch planes going into, into national. Yep. Yep. Great place to be on 4th <clears> of July too, for fireworks. I'm telling you. Um, so yeah, so you're going all the, over all these little bridges and, and you go to touch down on a short runway. I mean, you're talking 7,169 feet. And for those of you flying Cessna's around going, what are you talking about? I could do three touch and goes on one approach. Yeah. But when you're flying a fully loaded 737 or an Airbus A321 at 160,000 pounds plus approximately, and you're trying to land flaps full, medium braking or heavy braking or whatever it is, and you're trying to turn off you know, before you reach the other end and into the Potomac. Yeah, it's, it can be scary. And I've flown in there. <laughs> I used to be based in New York. I used to flow in there almost on a daily basis. And when there's snow on the ground, yeah, it could be a little intimidating. Um, that'll, that'll be exciting. My claim to, uh, my, not, I don't want to say a claim to fame, but my, my most exciting event at DCA, at National, was with legacy airlines it was a rainy day and we were delayed because of aircraft maintenance out of chicago and we were supposed to fly at 319 into dca and land around 10 30 at night but we got delayed we had to swap airplanes they put us in a 321 and we flew but late at night they closed down operations on runway 19 and runway one when they go to single pilot controller and the only thing available to you is 15 and 33. 15 is 5204 feet. Yeah, that's short. It's short. We have a special button in our landing app for <laughs> DCA for short runways. And yes, a 321 can land on runway 15 with medium braking <laughs> at a very low landing weight, full flaps. And you have about, uh, I think the, when we calculated it, we had about 200 feet to spare. Now, some pilots will say, I'm not doing it. I'm not doing it. Uh, it's just not <laughs> enough margin. And we'll talk about not enough landing margins here in a minute. But we ended up doing it. We landed at like 1 o'clock in the morning. Uh, the captain and I, I mean, I was looking inside the hallways of the Pentagon coming in on final. I mean, I've never been that low over the Pentagon. And yeah, they cleared us to land. We we taxied off. We actually got off on runway 22, runway 4. Uh, we didn't go all the way to the end to, to Foxtrot. Uh, but man, did that river come up fast. <laughs> the captain was standing on those brakes. <laughs> the brake fans were, came on after. Uh, it was one of those experiences where all the hair on the back of your neck stands up and you think to yourself, I don't want to do that again. <laughs> <laughs> yeah the margins were like just not I there do. yeah so if you ever you know delay you're delayed hours and hours into the the wee morning uh then yeah be careful <laughs> know what you're flying and know what your aircraft can do and yeah fun times Ooh, that's short yeah <laughs> <laughs> i'm looking at the diagram now that is short yeah I, I can't believe a 321. I mean, the, all the numbers worked. So we checked with the company. We checked with dispatch. They said, no, you're, you're good. You know, you're, you know, if it, and if you do a go around in DCA, you're not going back to DCA. You go to, no. you go to Dulles. 
go to Dallas. Or, you know, in some cases, if the weather's <clears throat> bad in Dallas, you can go to Baltimore. It's another one to the north. Um, so, yeah, one of the most exciting airports any airline pilot will ever fly into, hands down, Washington National Airport. It was fun. It's, uh, it's like I said, it's cool to shoot that approach. Uh, there's, uh, I was just looking on YouTube. There's several YouTube videos available of, of guys flying this approach, but really? <laughs> you, you'll see like right towards the end, uh, as you cross the bridge, you're pointed right at, uh, right at the Washington monument. Mm-hmm. Yep. Yep. And, uh, you got the Kennedy the, center the off your left and wing and the Capitol and you got the, the Lincoln Memorial. Um, you know, and your, your feet over the, the George Washington bridge. Oh, just beautiful. Beautiful. It's so cool. Yeah. Highly, highly recommend. Now, before we kind of wrap it up today, I I promised I was going to talk about diversions and, and reassignments and weather and severe weather and turbulence and all that stuff. Now I'm talking about a trip that I took last week. Been crazy busy flying this month. Um, I don't know why it just, this month it turned out that way. And I flew a trip. It was a, an easy two-day trip. It was two legs on day one and two legs on day two. That's not what we ended up doing. So on day one, we left Ontario around, uh, it was a 623 departure. Got to the airplane by 515. Got the pre-flight done. Met the captain. You know, flew with him before. Everything, everything was normal. Normal morning. And we took off and we went to Dallas. Now there was rain in the Southern California area and it's still raining up until this morning. It was raining and we've had heavy rain, heavy snow in Southern California. Anyone watching the news can see the San Bernardino mountains, the Los Angeles national forest, all of all the roads up there completely shut down. They're talking feet of snow. This is, hasn't happened in a long, long time that we got this kind of precipitation. And they've made records in a lot like Big Bear and in Mammoth, all these areas in California have had record snowfall accumulation. So it's been an interesting few weeks for Southern Californians. Now, Southern Californians don't know what rain is. We think that a little bit of wetness on the ground is rain and people lose their their shit when they try to drive because they don't know how to drive in the rain and <laughs> bumper to bumper traffic because of all the accidents. Everyone sliding off the road with their bald tires that may work in dry conditions, you know, 364 days out of the year. <laughs> but as soon as the ground gets a little bit of wet and, you know, you got all that oil residue, it, it's like bumper cars out there. So be careful. Slow down. Um, so we took off. We went to, to Dallas. You know, the weather in Dallas was fine. It was nothing unusual. And we had a little bit of a sip. And we had to take off and go to Albuquerque, which was going to be our layover. And it was a nice early, I was planning on visiting with some family that I have in Albuquerque. We were going to get to the hotel by 2.30. Everything was going to go great. And I remembered what I heard at home was, oh, I hope the weather in Albuquerque holds up. They're supposed to get snow. And I was like, really? So, okay. So, I started looking, you know, I do my Apple, my iPhone weather, and I go click on Albuquerque. And sure enough, it said, you know, possibility of snow. And I thought, oh, that'll be pretty. No big deal, right? Well, we took off out of Dallas. We leveled off. A relatively short flight, you know. And as soon as we leveled off, I remembered that. I remember what my family said. And I said, you know what? Let's pull up the eighties in Dallas, shall we? So <laughs> I looked at it, and I can remember I went, Oh crap! Uh, should we divert now? And the captain's like, "What are you talking about?" I'm like, "Uh, 
yeah, did you see what the ATIS and the TAF is all about? They just updated it. And he's like, no, what's it say? And <laughs> Albuquerque, Information Quebec. And it was at 20330. It was a special weather observation. Winds oh. 270 at 45, gusting 64, one miles, blowing snow, blowing dust, light, rain, <laughs> broken 1,500, broken 3,200. Uh, and it went on. And low level wind shear advisories are in effect. Moderate turbulence reported below. <laughs> <laughs> I'm like, wait a minute. Um, I'm pretty sure our company procedures are we suspend all operations at 50 knots, right? And the captain goes, yeah, I'm not landing more than 50 knots. There's no way. It's, <laughs> it's, we can't do it. No matter what, we can't do it. And I'm like, yeah. So let's look at the TAF. And we looked at it and it wasn't going to get any better anytime soon. So the captain says to me, well, let's, let me uh, get on the crew phone. And I'm going to call the dispatcher and we'll see about, you know, going to our alternate. Now, what is a crew phone? The crew phone is through the Wi-Fi system in the airplane on the tablet. We have so what's called a crew phone. And with a couple strokes of the keystrokes, you can get connected directly via Wi-Fi call, voice call to your dispatcher. So the captain put in his his headphones and he called the dispatcher and he's like yeah man you're looking at this weather how come you haven't told us anything about this i mean we kind of saw that the weather was gonna be bad but there was nothing forecasted to be at 65 knots and he goes yeah you know it just kind of came up and you know they're getting a cold front that's passing through and as soon as it passes it should get better for you and he goes yeah but the tap still shows 45 knots <laughs> and so it's like, yeah, but it's down the runway. And, you know, so, are, but you're going to divert, right? I'm like, well, they evacuated the tower. The airport's closed. Yeah, I think we're going to have to divert. <laughs> <laughs> so, so he's on the phone. He's like, yeah, okay, you guys are going to go to Phoenix. So he looks at me and he goes, all right, Tony, you know, Sierra Recovery Radio is obviously a, start telling them that, you know, we're not looking good for Albuquerque. We're going to go to Phoenix. We can start getting that, uh, that flight plan. It's our filed alternate anyway. So I'm like, okay. So I'm talking with uh, air traffic control. He's wrapping it up over there. Now we got to talk to the flight attendants. We have to make a PA to the passengers. We have to call operations and make sure that we're good. Make sure that Phoenix knows we're coming. Make sure we're going to have a gate when we get there. What are we going to need? Are we going to need fuel or, or fuel and go? Or are we going to need catering and, you know, lab servicing? And, you know, what, what are we going to need? Are any, are any of the passengers going to get off the airplane? Normally, we don't let passengers off the airplane because we're just going to go fuel and go. But in this situation, there were a few passengers that had connections in Albuquerque. I, I don't know how that works. They save $10 on that's the price line. Yeah, that's really weird. So <clears throat> we ended up in Phoenix and it was a relatively quick turn, 40 minutes. We fueled it up. We did lab service because what happens when we divert, everybody feels the need to use the restroom and so be it. And we are watching the weather in Albuquerque. And sure enough, the low pressure system and the cold front that passed through there that created all the havoc with the wind had passed. However, the winds were still gusting to 45. Fortunately, they were right down the runway. And it was legal for us to depart. And we did uh, about an hour flight. We landed in Phoenix at around five o'clock at night, uh, which was not too late, about three hours behind schedule. And I'll tell you, man, even the short drive to the hotel was a little dicey. I mean, the, the wind was blowing the hotel van around and, and we both looked at each other like, 
man, this is a uh, this is crazy. This wind is really strong. This is like worse than what we'd experience in Dallas when they have their severe weather. Um, so yeah, had a a quick bite to eat at the hotel, and I was exhausted. I was tired because you know we had a lot. It wasn't one of those flights where you're just sitting there sipping your coffee, reading the paper, talking about. Did you see what this politician said on the news the other day? No. This was one of those flights where it was nonstop. Everybody was working. Everybody's communicating, talking. We're, we're not doing the norm. We're now recalculating, reprogramming the FMS system, you know, you know, doing these approaches in high wind conditions. And, and even Phoenix was windy when we got there. So it, we, we worked. We worked hard. And we thought, ah, oh, well, thank goodness. Tomorrow should be a piece of cake. No. <laughs> no. So the next day we're supposed to do Albuquerque to Phoenix. Phoenix to Burbank. Burbank to Phoenix. And then Phoenix back to Ontario. So actually it was a four leg. I misspoke earlier, I said two and two. It was a two and four. But they're all quick flights, you know, and I'd never been to Burbank before. And my captain said he had never been to Burbank before. I knew that the 737 had a special departure procedure with their performance. They're doing what, 102% thrust or whatever. The, they call it the Burbank takeoff performance. Uh, 27K, I think, uh, uh, huh. is what Rob calls it. It's a special, it's a special <clears throat> thing that you, that you get more performance. It's a max thrust, more than normal. Right. right? So, but we're flying in there in an Airbus, which is not really common. So, okay. So we studied and we took off out of Albuquerque and went to Phoenix the next morning. Not a big deal. Got into Phoenix, had about an hour and a half to sit and check the weather. And it's still raining in Southern California. And I looked at the captain. I went, well, it's raining. How long is that runway in Burbank? And are the numbers going to be wet? And what's the braking action? So we're like, wait a minute. Now we're talking about an airport that is surrounded by the hills of Southern California, north of Los Angeles, not by very many miles. It's actually, I think, about 30 miles as the flow cries, as the crow flies. Um, let me see if I can pull it up. Now we were talking about DCA being short runways. Burbank is no exception. Runway 8 is 5,802 feet long. So 5,802 feet long. Very little ramp space. When you turn off the runway, you turn off the runway and park right at your gate. So you take it to the, where your gate is and turn off the runway. Very tight. Surrounded by some, some hills, like I mentioned. So the numbers are very unforgiving. Now, if you look at the chart for Burbank, that's a KBUR. There's the thousand foot markers, and then just slightly beyond the thousand foot markers, there's a taxiway called Charlie Eight. And our operations pages, because every airport we have our company operations pages that we're supposed to review prior to departing to go to that airport, it says that if you don't touch down by Charlie Eight, you must perform a go around. Charlie Eight is about 200 feet beyond the aiming point markers. So you literally have 1,200 feet to be on the ground before you have to do a go-around, okay? So the pressure was high. Now, before we left Phoenix, knowing that the weather was what it was, raining, gusting, 
I told the captain, I'm going to run a land app before we go. He goes, you know what? That's a great idea. So we ran the numbers and it said we needed 5,800 feet. (laughs) And I went, that's a two foot margin, captain. And he goes, yeah. And I go, did you put, did you put breaking action wet good or did you leave it dry? And he goes, oh, I didn't even think of that. He goes, you're right. It's going to be wet because even if it stops raining, it's going to be wet. Like, I agree. So he put the wet numbers in and he goes, oh yeah, we need 6,300 feet. I'm like, yeah, we're going to end up at the gas station like that other carrier did years ago. <laughs> so he calls the dispatcher and goes, what do you want us to do? We, it's raining. It's wet. Uh, the forecast shows it's going to rain for another three hours and some of it's going to be heavy rain. Uh, what do you want us to do? We, we are not legal to go. We, we don't have the landing performance. And he goes, well, yeah, we've been looking at that too. Why don't you make a PA to the passengers and tell them we have full intention to taking you to Burbank today. However, because of the forecast of the winds and the weather and the rain and the wet runways, we just don't have the landing performance. So what we'll end up doing is diverting you know, 99% chance we're going to divert to Los Angeles. And from there, we'll, we'll, the company will put you on a bus or cabs or whatever and get you to Burbank. It's only 30 miles away. Anybody that wants to get off the airplane can. Other than that, we're, we're going to go. And I think three people got off the airplane and said, you know what? That's fine. I'll find another way. I was going to connect through there. I, I'll go somewhere else. Fine. So sure enough, we did everything that the company wanted us to do. We push off the gate, we take off, and we go towards Burbank. and. We weren't even talking to SoCal yet. We're still with LA Center. And like, yeah, uh, weather conditions at Burbank, uh, we don't have the performance to land. We're going to divert to Los Angeles. And so we did. Now, everyone got off the airplane. Baggage got off the airplane. All we had on the airplane at that point was flight attendants and pilots. And we thought, well, what are they going to do with us? And I said, oh, no, no, we need you to ferry that airplane to Burbank because we have a full flight leaving Burbank to go back to Phoenix. We need you to do that. And we're like, um... Okay, so we ran the numbers again, and with an empty aircraft, we had a margin of about 500 extra feet. Now, mind you, with the limitation that you must land within the first thousand feet of the runway, the margins should be perfect, right? And the weather looked like there was going to be a break in the weather, the rain was going to stop, the sun was going to shine, everything was hunky-dory. So we did everything we needed to do, and we're like, okay, we got everybody off, we got the fuel, we got everything good to go let's get out of here and the dispatcher goes no uh you need to wait an hour and we're like what we're ready to go let's go we're no you need to wait an hour we don't have gate space right now in burbank so what happened was because we missed our time slot the next flight had flown in there from a different destination they were able to land and they were at the the gate that we use so there's nowhere to put us in Burbank. So they said, no, we're holding you for gate space, gate availability. So we waited another hour. We went and had, had a meal, <laughs> grabbed a burger, and then we took off at our new scheduled time and landed in Burbank. Now, the captain goes, you know, uh, why don't you fly it? I'm like, really? Yeah, I'll fly it. He goes, yeah, it's your leg anyway. I'm like, okay. So that was fun. As soon as we took off, the captain regretted that decision. Because we, we taxied to the north of Los Angeles, to the north end. We took off on 2-4 left. We departed. 
as soon as we got over the shoreline, they cleared us vectored to the north. Uh, we were doing 250 knots at 6,000 feet. That was our maximum altitude. And as soon as we got to 250 knots at 6,000 feet, they said, vector, 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 you're cleared the ILS. <laughs> it's a perfect. And we're like, oh, okay. We like not used to that right so the captain was over there asses and elbows he's doing all this running all his flows i'm i'm trying to brief him while he's setting up this and that and we did for all fairness we did set everything up on the ground from the approach to the briefing to everything and all i had to do is like kind of reiterate the briefing so it was on the tape and we came in to land sure enough the clouds parted we had the airport visually and he's like dude it's a light airplane don't float i'm like he goes yeah i'm like and you know we're supposed to go around if you don't touch on like, yeah yeah i know and go, okay and it is, you're gonna and it just hit the brakes don't don't worry about you know heating the uh, yeah, yeah i know <laughs> so we came in and it was howling the winds were howling and your clouds were moving and i had a good visual on the airport we're clear to land it was 12 minutes from takeoff to touchdown wow 12 minutes i that was the fastest flight i've ever flown uh empty airplane and, you know, I, I didn't worry about greasing anything on. I just, you know, got to the aiming point right at the beginning of the, the thousand foot paint. And I was like, boop, 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 you know, hit the brakes. We're all got. And I realized, well, I pretty much could have gotten off at the midfield at 2,900 feet down the runway. <laughs> He's like, yeah. He goes, that wasn't actually that bad. You had plenty of runway left. I'm like, yeah, I know. <laughs> so we get there. We're getting squeezed in that tight little corner. And uh, sure enough, I was like, quick, quick, get everybody on, get the fuel. All right, you're ready to go. And we, you know, uneventfully took off and flew into Phoenix. However, we timed out. So I didn't get to go home on my go home day. We ended up in Phoenix. Now the captain goes, look, there's a Southwest flight that leaves in an hour. I'm just going to stay at the airport and it's a full flight, but I'm going to ride the jump seat. And I'm just going to go back to Ontario. I want to be home tonight. I'm like, I understand. I get it. He goes, I probably won't get home until one in the morning, but you know, I just want to get home. I'm like, I understand. I'm like, I'm going to the hotel. I'll hold the room. If in case you don't make that flight, just text me and I'll, you know, I'll meet you for dinner. Sure enough. He texts me. He goes, yeah, I got on. Thanks. You know, good flying with you, but this and that. So I stayed at the hotel in Phoenix, got a decent dinner and you know, I deadheaded home the next day. This is a pilot's typical life this doesn't happen every week this doesn't happen every time but it happens it happens often you think you're going to be home you plan your life around your schedule line holder or not and this is what happens you you can't plan everything and there are birthdays you're going to miss there are uh, appointments that you're going to have to cancel and it's just the nature of the business yeah it it uh it happened to us right at the beginning of this uh, this trip I just flew. Um, so it, it was at the beginning. It wasn't. Uh, it didn't affect us getting home, but um, we were departing out of National, and our inbound was two and a half hours late. So we were supposed to go from uh, <clears throat> DC to Denver. And then Denver to Vancouver, and we were going to overnight in Vancouver. And uh, because the inbound was two and a half hours late, we ended up, uh, by the time we got to Denver, they had already recruited our Vancouver trip. And so they just deadheaded us to San Francisco, and we ended up spending the night there. So, and we picked up 
the the second day of our trip was supposed to go from Vancouver to San Francisco. So we just picked up the rest of our trip there. But yeah, I mean, the schedule, it's, it's not always weather. It's sometimes it's maintenance and, uh, you know, it's all subject to change. Yeah. Yeah. And it truly is the, kind of the norm you have to get used to if if this is not working the backside of the clock having 2 a.m sim sessions uh having to fly red eyes and then sleep in the middle of the day in a time zone that's not yours and get maybe four or five hours of sleep and then have to perform at the your highest level in the airplane the next day whether it's weather if this is not something that you are willing to do then seriously consider aviation just not in the airline environment there are plenty of pilots out there that love to fly but just can't deal with the changes in the schedule and the and the inability to schedule yourself around your personal life so it's not for everyone yeah and the uh you know the airlines are are probably as um you know, if you're looking for scheduling within aviation, unless you find one of those, uh, I mean, they're out there. You can find those jobs that have very set schedules and, you know, or maybe you're home every night and you know you're going to be home every night. Um, those jobs are out there and, and they're great. Um, there are corporate jobs out there that, you know, maybe you don't know your schedule at all. You're just you're on call. You're it's the opposite end of the spectrum where yeah. you might be on a maybe a, a six hour leash or a twelve hour leash where you know you can get a call saying, "Hey, we need to go to uh, White Plains tonight. Let's go," um, and you, you got to go. So there, there's that, that's that's kind of the the opposite end of the spectrum there. And then you know the airlines are more towards the scheduled side, but things change frequently and you know if that's not for you for you then uh there's there's probably a segment of the industry that is it's uh you just have to find that uh find that job yeah yeah and it's out there it's out there well recently you know we're talking about schedules we're talking about the the struggle of being a professional airline pilot a charter pilot and any professional commercial pilot out there that has to deal with adverse weather scheduling needs of the company all these things that they don't tell you about when you're out there flying your Cessna around going I want to be an airline pilot someday like like I was um, and this recently on social media a Southwest pilot an anonymous pilot wrote a very eloquent article about the reality of what it's like to be an airline pilot. It's not all contracts and big money and hundreds of dollars an hour and you know a new Corvette every other month. It's not that at all. As a matter of fact, according to this pilot, the reality is much different. And this is from Arrow Crew News. If I find a link, I'll throw it in the show notes here. But he writes this, of course, opinion piece from an anonymous Southwest pilot. Fill out the application. Qualified pilot candidates are in demand. That's what I say when I hear someone denigrate my colleagues for fighting for a contract that puts them at the top of their market, or when they lament what pilots are paid. Every career field has its own market, 
even yours. And everyone wants to be near or at the top. It is worth it. Sign up. I usually get a blank stare after that. The application thing seems easy enough. It's not that easy, though. For starters, you'll need to spend half a decade hustling and coughing up $100,000 to $250,000 in cash to get through a civilian flight school or a university, get a low-paying job, build the hours to meet airline minimums, or surrender a full decade of your life to the U.S. military to gain the experience necessary to apply with elevated risk of combat. You'll have to take a series of evaluations that test all of your knowledge and skills in some horrendous situations over the remainder of your career. You'll do that every year to remain gainfully employed. You will be subject to medical evaluations twice per year, and your career can end at any point for any reason the government sees fit. It's a privilege, after all, not a right. You will start at the bottom and only advance as a function of seniority. You will get the garbage assignments and laid off in reverse seniority order as well. You will work weekends and holidays for a long time. You will get off-peak vacation weeks for a long time. You will miss birthdays, anniversaries, Christmas, a lot of them. You can only refuse an assignment if it's unsafe or illegal. You will be evaluated if you refuse. If you get reassigned or mandatory extra days, you have to comply. Then, file a grievance if you think it's in violation of your contract. Either way, you have to comply and let your union fight it out. That can take a very long time. Some days it looks easy. You see us on the ground the door open, drinking coffee and chatting. Maybe the weather is nice. Maybe we are in our first few hours of duty. Maybe everything on the jet is working. We are a day into our four-day trip. Other days, the weather is kicking the planet. Fuel and passenger loads are tight. Mechanical issues and operational failures are happening. You're on a day four and the 10th hour in your day, and something breaks in flight. It doesn't matter if you're a 40-year-old captain or a fresh and crisp first-year new hire FO. How much is your pilot worth to you, your family, your loved ones, when this happens on your flight? The airlines know about four to six billion dollars in liability, 50 to 200 million dollar aircraft, hundreds of lives lost, thousands impacted. Pilot careers can pay well, because they should. It's a market. Fill out the application. It is worth it. I'll help you along the way. You'll get sunrises and sunsets, the best views, and lifelong friends. It is worth it. This pilot writes this really beautiful explanation of what it is, and he says it's worth it to him. The question is, is it worth it to you? Dealing with missed birthdays and holidays and Christmases and evaluations and, you know, getting beat up once a year in the simulator for your requalification, having every emergency that they can possibly throw at you in that short period of time, in those few hours, having your medical examined at least twice a year, especially after the age of 40. Um, and all of it could be taken away 
after one flight, after one event, after one accident. And sometimes it's not even your doing because you're up there as a team. You're working together. And sometimes you're just along for the ride. So if you're willing to deal with all that, I think the career myself also, I think it's worth it. For me, it's a passion. And yes, I believe we should be paid extremely well because the responsibility and liability of this career, when you're at the controls of the airplane, whether you're in the left seat or the right seat, irrelevant, you're in the controls of the airplane, you're handling the airplane, it matters. We should get paid handsomely. Now, Roger, if he was here, he'd make fun, I'm sure. <laughs> Roger, we'll have to hear about this on the next time you're on. Uh, but yeah, I, I honestly think that considering the trips that we sometimes deal with, considering the diversions, the short runways, the wet runways, the passenger disturbances, the flight attendant disturbances, I mean, <laughs> you name it. It's just not some, uh, I don't feel like coming into work today in the middle of it, you know, you can't just storm out, you know, unless you have a parachute. You just can't just storm out. You can't just go, F this, I'm out of here. It's definitely a career that only a select few of us can do. Yeah, absolutely. And, and you know, there's that saying out there, <clears throat> if you love what you do, you'll never work a day in your life. Um, and I feel like that applies uh, for us uh, as, as airline pilots, you know, you, you, you only get into this if you're passionate about it. Um, and, you know, there's, as you said, there's a lot of responsibility. There's a lot of, <clears throat> there's a lot of ways that this career can be taken away from you in an, in an instant. Yeah. And, uh, you know, the, the level of responsibility that, I mean, on a, daily basis multiple times per day you have nearly 200 people whose lives are in your hands um and it, the companies I, the companies whether they will admit this or not and most of them won't but you know the crew um has the future of the company in their hands every time they they climb in that cockpit and, and operate an aircraft um you know because Imagine what would happen if um, any major U.S. airline carrier, if there were a crash tomorrow or, or an accident tomorrow, um, that carrier would suffer significant financial losses, never mind the loss of life, which is you know, tragic in and of itself, but um, the, the financial losses to that company might be enough to put the company out of business, even the biggest carriers today. Yeah. Um, so <clears throat> we, we as pilots should be compensated appropriately for the level of responsibility that, uh, that we hold. Yeah. And we are under the microscope. I've said it before, you know, if, uh, if a doctor out there somewhere in the world botches a surgery and they say, well, it was high-risk surgery. I'm sorry, but, you know, your, your loved one didn't make it. Okay, nine out of ten. Oh, that's awful. That's terrible. You know, they didn't make it through surgery. Who's evaluating, checking, and putting them under a microscope to see if they made a mistake? And if they did, they are never going to practice medicine ever again, right? But we as pilots are put under that microscope. I mean, just look at the 777 runway incursion in JFK. Thank God nothing happened. There was a 
you know, disaster was averted. However, the those three pilots on the triple seven were put under the microscope, and yeah, maybe they did make a mistake, but it will not go unresearched. It will not go. I mean, in the public eye, you know, they all got subpoenas. They're all going to have to appear in court uh, under investigation for the from the NTSB. Now, whether or not they were 100% at fault or not, it's up for the NTSB to make a final report and decide. But that could be the end of careers if, if, if they were found at fault. Yeah, and I don't think that many other professions have that. You know, a doctor accidentally, you know, doesn't do a surgery quite right and the patient dies. They're doing surgery the next day and the day after that and the day after that. I mean... No other profession has the microscope on us as much, I don't think, uh, unless you're like an astronaut going into outer space. But even then, <laughs> uh, you know, if something happens, to go, well, it was a risky job, right? Um, right. And, and they've had accidents before in the space program. And, hey, well, it's a risky job. You knew the risk. But that is not an excuse for the airline industry. It's a risky job. It can be. Uh, but... Uh, any any risk at all the the public will not allow will not stand for so right yeah you definitely oh, absolutely it. you know before we wrap it up today i wanted to to read a, a feedback speaking of you know getting listener feedback uh, a while back i received an email from keith and keith writes greetings squawk ident crew i have been loving your show for the past year I'm a private pilot in Little Rock, Arkansas, and I own a Technum P2008. I have especially been enjoying listening to the journeys of Alex D. as he starts his career at Sandpiper. I noticed on the show that Alex flies a lot of trips into Little Rock. I would love to catch up next time Alex has a layover. Legacy also flies a few A319s and 320s into Little Rock a day. So, Tony... If you're ever in town, let me know as well. Feel free to drop me a line. Thank you, Keith. Uh, very, very much enjoyed reading your feedback. Yes, I will absolutely do that. I'm not sure what base flies into Little Rock with that A320. I believe it would be a Dallas-based crew. Um, I don't know if Rob flies in there at all. I have I've flown into Little Rock for years uh, when I was at Sandpiper. I haven't flown into Little Rock in a long time. But if I'm ever out that way, I'll be sure to drop you a line and you too can send us feedback we'll be happy to to share that on air uh we love getting it every feedback we get makes us just that better well terry thank you so much for all your input today it was a pleasure having you on i look forward to having you on here uh more often on future shows i'm so excited and privileged uh to speak to you about that and uh you know Thanks again for sharing your journey with us. No, I, I appreciate you having me on. I, I uh, thoroughly enjoyed it. I look forward to uh, to being on uh, more often and uh, and seeing the crew uh, while they uh, can get some time away from their flying duties. Yeah. Um, but yeah, it's it's been fun. I look forward to uh, to more fun. 
Yes, absolutely. You know, and we hope that you out there uh, in our listening audience, all all seven of you, we hope that you enjoyed listening to the flight today. You know, please pay it forward by sharing this podcast with your friends and your family. If you want to hear a particular topic, you have questions about what we do, we would love to hear from you. You can do that right from our website at www.aviatortony.com. That's Alpha, Victor, the number eight, Romeo, Tango, Oscar, number Yankee.com. Make sure that you subscribe and follow to the Squawk Ed in podcast on whatever platform you're listening on. There's so many podcast players out there and apps. I mean, if you don't like the one you are on now, just go to the website right there on the bottom of the homepage. There's plenty of, of options to choose from in terms of podcast players. Uh, we also, again, like I said, love receiving listener feedback. We'd love to re- receive an email from you. That would be that would be great. Uh, even some audio feedback via our website at aviatortony.com. So Facebook, YouTube, Instagram users, you know what to do. Follow us at Squawk Out In Podcast. One final thank you to all of you for taking the time to listen to these grateful aviators. Keep the dirty side down out there. Stay safe. And take care of each other. Bye, y'all.
Fighter flying. 